the uh, Gospel of John um, in our last study. So what we're doing now is actually the body of the letter, verse 19 through chapter 12, verse 50, is the first part of the body of John's Gospel, and it records Yeshua's public ministry to the multitudes in Palestine who were primarily Judeans. Now, some writers have called this section of the Gospel the Book of Signs because it features seven miracles Yeshua performed as proof that He's the Son of God. Now, you know the number seven is a special number. It's a number of perfection or completion. So here we have seven miracles in this section. This section deals with the public ministry of Yeshua culminating in His triumphal entry into Jerusalem at the week of Passover. And the remainder of the Gospel focuses on the Passion the last week of Yeshua's life. Now today we begin to look at the testimony of John the Baptizer. The Baptizer is the first witness brought forward by the writer of this Gospel, John Eliezer, to give testimony to who Yeshua is. And it's interesting that this testimony takes place over three days. On day one, John's testimony about his own role is largely negative. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. You'll see that. He's just saying, I'm not this, I'm not that. You know, he's denying what his role is in this thing. And day two, John gives a positive testimony about who Yeshua is. And then on day three, John sends his own disciples to follow Yeshua. But before we look at John's testimony, I want to look at Yeshua's testimony about John. So who is this man, John, that we should pay any attention to anything he says? Well, Matthew 11, verse 7-9 through 9 says, And these men were going away. Yeshua began to speak to the crowds about John, John the Baptist. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? And we'll talk about this fact that the wilderness, that's John, where John's ministry was. What did you go out to see? They said, a reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, one who is more than a prophet. So here we have Yeshua's testimony about John saying he is more than a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's beyond a prophet. Verse 11 of Matthew 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So he says there's no one arisen greater than John the Baptist, someone born of a woman. That's a pretty glowing recommendation, especially when it's coming from Yeshua. All right? But it wasn't just Yeshua who had a high view of John. Notice what Herod thought of him in Mark 6, 17-20. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John got in trouble because he's getting in the political scene here. He's getting in their business, so to speak, and saying, listen, it's not lawful for you to do what you're doing. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death and could not do so, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man. So Herod's afraid of John. He's afraid of him because he's a righteous man. He's a holy man. He understands this is a prophet of God. And he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So John is is really highly spoken of by Yeshua. He's highly spoken of by Herod. 
And he's also spoken of highly in literature outside of the Bible. For example, Josephus, the first century historian, writes this. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and that very justice as a punishment of what he did against John. So they're saying, well, the reason that Herod got judged is because of what he did to John. So he's saying, John, this John was a special individual that was called the Baptist for Herod slew him, who was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue. Now, when many others came in crowds about him, for they were greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words, Herod, who feared lest the great influence of John over the people might put into his power and inclination to rise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best by putting him to death. So, John, again, here we see here that Josephus has good things to say about John. And let me say that John was not liked because he was a Joel Osteen type preacher. Okay? As we saw in Matthew, he spoke out against sin. He wasn't afraid to call sin, sin. Notice what Luke says of him. And he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's not a good way for a preacher to draw a crowd. All right? John was telling it like it was. He didn't dance around issues. He didn't soft-pedal the truth. He wasn't worried about hurting people's feelings. He wasn't worrying about being politically correct. He just spoke the truth. You bunch of vipers, you snakes, what are you doing out here? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? So he is a man who lays it on the line, and he's liked. People thought highly of him. Now, The fourth gospel here does not record the events of Yeshua's baptism in the Jordan River performed by John the Baptist. And remember we said this gospel was the last gospel written. It was written late, close to A.D. 70. And so John assumes that you've read the other gospels. You've got these other accounts, you understand them. Therefore, he just picks up the thread of the story and goes on after the others that ended. But Mark, I want to back up to Mark a minute and fill in a little bit of the details because this is important that we understand this. Mark says in Mark 1.4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now I want you to notice here where John is preaching. He's in the wilderness. This is very significant. The idea that this was happening in the wilderness is important because throughout the life of the Hebrew people, significant things happen for them in the wilderness. This is a picture of the country from Jerusalem to the area of Jericho. It was rugged. It was desolate. All right. And these people are not jumping in their SUVs, air conditioned to go hear this, you know, this preacher speak in an air conditioned arena. No, they're walking. All right. Approximately 20 miles from Jerusalem, further from Galilee to go out in the middle of this desolate area to hear this guy preaching. It was just across from the city of Jericho here on the east of the bank of the Jordan River where he's preaching. And here's this young 30-year-old priest who's just beginning his ministry. And he's going to call the people to repentance in preparation of the coming of Messiah. Now, a priest began his ministry at the age of 30 years old. We see that if we back up to Numbers 4, 1 through 3. Now, Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the descendants of Koath, 
from among the sons of Levi, by their families, by their father's households, from 30 years old and upward, even to 50 years old. So they served from 30 to 50. That was it. They retired. Then they could help out after that. But that's basically the years of their service. All right. Now, of all the places, Yachanan ben Zechariah, John, the son of Zechariah, could have chosen to begin his ministry. Why would you pick a desolate part? You know, when you're setting up a church, you're going to plant a church, you're going to have a ministry, you want to go where people are. All right? You want to make it real easy, you want to make it real convenient so people can find you, they can see you, you know, they're out. No, this guy goes out in the middle of a desolate area to preach. There's nobody living out there. Why? Well, the Jordan River flows from springs of the Golan Heights, which is up there further, you can't see it on the map here, down to the Sea of Galilee and then southward through the barren wilderness into the lowest part on the entire face of the earth, the Dead Sea. Now, why would anyone want to travel all that way? I mean, from lush Galilee or even 20 miles from Jerusalem through a desert wilderness to ford the Jordan River near Jericho, to submit to some young priest who had separated himself from the temple priesthood. He wasn't really part of what was going on in Jerusalem at that time. Well, for the Jews and for the Israelites of the Roman province of Judea and Galilee, this location of this ritual baptism and the attire of the priest would have spoken volumes symbolically. All right, This location was exactly where these people expected God to do great things. They were, they knew that something was going to happen. They were looking for the Messiah, and this area is very significant. And that's why they flocked to it. The location was exactly where these people expected God was going to show up and do some things. This was the place where the 9th century BC prophet Elisha cured Naaman, the servant of the king of Syria. This is where this happened at. And this was where the young Elijah saw his master, the prophet Elijah, assumed into heaven in a fiery chariot. So this is where Elijah disappears from this spot. Now here's a guy dressed like Elijah in this same area preaching. And so people are excited. What's going on? But I think most important for these first century Jews and Israelites oppressed by the Roman Empire, this site will recall a period in their history when these people were freed from oppression. And were given sanctuary and freedom in a new land, in the promised land. They would remember that Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of the wilderness, and his successor Joshua led the people across the Jordan River into the promised land. This is the location of the place of the crossing. This is where God's holy nation crossed over the Jordan River into the land that God had promised them. And for the people, this action of symbolically reenacting this Exodus experience signaled a new beginning. The expectations were very high at this time, waiting for a Messiah. They wanted to be free from their oppressor, Rome. And so they're looking for this political leader to show up to free them. No wonder the people, the huge crowds went out to see this guy because they're expecting something big. Like I said, you don't start a, a ministry in an area like this unless something really special is going on. Well, John's gospel picks up the thread of the story where the other accounts ended. And John just starts in verse 19. He says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? All right, the word testimony here. Marturia, it means a witness. 
So John is a witness. This is the testimony of John. This is the witness of John. He's one of seven people named in this gospel who gave witness to the fact that Yeshua is Yahweh. So we have seven signs. We got seven witnesses. You know, God's doing something here. Now, why is it so important that John Elazar draws from John the Baptist this initial testimony? Well, I think it's because John was a prophet. In fact, he was the only prophet in Israel. There hadn't been a prophet for over 400 years. From the end of the book of Malachi, it's been silent. No prophet. All of a sudden, here's a prophet. Yeshua called him a prophet. The people realize he's a prophet. A prophet shows up and the expectancy is great. Something's going to happen. Everyone knew him to be a prophet. In John 1, which we looked at a few weeks ago, verses 6 and 7, we were told that John was sent to witness to the light. This is his testimony. That's what he is doing now. Matthew 14, 5 says, They regarded John as a prophet. He's the prophet of God. So now they're, they're going out to this desolate place to hear what he has to say. And it says, When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Now the first question we have to ask here is, Who are these Jews? What does John Elazar mean by that term? What's he trying to tell us here? When the Bible talks about Jews, who's it referring to? Now, you ask Christians that, you're going to get a ton of different answers. I think that most Christians would answer this question by saying, well, the Jews are the 12 tribes of Israel. They're God's covenant people. But that's not really correct. All right? The term Jews was first used in the Babylonian captivity. All right? The the Babylonians called them Jews because they were from Judah. That makes sense? And at the time of the writing of the New Testament, during the Roman kingdom, there was only two tribes in the Palestinian area, Judah and Benjamin. There were certain individuals, of course, from other tribes, but for the most part, it was just the two tribes. And normally those two tribes were called Jews or Judeans. All right? But look at how it's used here. He says, the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem. So this is not a reference to two tribes of Judah. John uses the term Jews as a religious term, and he uses it negatively. He uses it 68 times in this gospel, in contrast to the other gospels who rarely use it at all. John uses this term for the most part to refer to Jewish people who were hostile to Yeshua. Now, that's not how it's used all through the New Testament, but I'm telling you, that's how John uses it. You've got to keep that in mind when you see this term Jews in this gospel. He's referring to people who are hostile to Yeshua. It occasionally, it is used in a neutral sense. For example, in John 2, 6. Now, there were six stone water pots there for the Jewish custom of purification. So this is not negative, it's just neuter. It's talking about a custom of the Jewish people. At times, it's used in a good sense. John 4.22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So at times, it is used in a good sense, times in a neutral sense, but for the most part, it is used negatively. Leon Morris says this, Most often, however, it refers to the Jews of Judea, especially those in and around Jerusalem, who constituted the organized and established religious world apart from faith in Jesus. Consequently, it usually carries overtones of hostility to Jesus. So the term ha-yudaios, the Jews, 
when used by John, refers to the people of Judah who were hostile to Yeshua or the Jewish religious leaders who were hostile to him. So in verse 19, it's used primarily here of the Jewish religious leaders. So these are the big shots. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the group that's running things, the political scene, if you would, the religious political scene. And they really want to know what this guy is doing. Now, the priests and the Levites were usually Sadducees. You know why they were sad? They didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. That's how you can remember that, all right? You've got to be sad if you don't believe in the resurrection. But they were the priests and Levites were usually Sadducees. Now, while the scribes were usually Pharisees, and both of these groups were involved in questioning John the Baptist, the political and religious antagonists, they joined forces in opposition to Yeshua and his followers. This is the only occurrence of the term Levites in this gospel. They possibly were temple police. The Levites served two roles. They were either the musicians or the temple police. And I'm thinking of that, I thought we've got to get our, all our musicians here sidearmed so they can do, serve a dual purpose. You know, they can sing and then they can protect the place, all right? But that's what the Levites did, all right? They were, they were the temple police. And listen, they, they, they was, it was serious, okay? There were signs in the temple, you don't go past this wall if you're a Gentile by fear of death. And you crossed into that area and you could you lose your life very easily. So they weren't people to be messed with, all right? So this is a, this is a group sent by the leaders. This was an official fact-finding group. They want to know, who, who is this guy? What's going on? Now, let me give you just a little history of the priests, just to help you understand what's going on here with John and with this gospel. King David had designated Aaron's descendants, the sons of Zadok, as legitimate line to succeed the Aaronic priesthood. All right. Now, in Ezekiel 44, Yahweh criticizes the Levites for their role in Israel's idolatry, but he praises the priests of Zadok for their faithfulness. Now, the last legitimate high priest of this line was Onias III. He was assassinated in 170 B.C. Later, when the Maccabees, a priestly family that was not from Zadok, defeated the Greek Seleucid Empire, they had controlled the country as well as the appointment of the high priest. So now they're setting up the high priest, the Maccabees. They usurped that office. Well, in protest, a community was established near the Dead Sea. This is significant. You're familiar with Qumran, the caves at Qumran, the Dead Sea sect, the Essenes were there. In their sectarian writings, they referred to themselves, the Essenes did, as the sons of Zadok. In other words, they saw themselves as the true line of the people of God. And they referred to the Jerusalem priesthood as the wicked priests. And let me tell you, they were right on with this, okay? What you've got to understand, at the time of Yeshua, the priesthood was totally corrupt. It was wicked. It was anything but godly, all right? Just a bunch of religious... You know, a politically religious organization that was run by money. Well, in this community, the archaeologists call Qumran, and in the caves near the settlement of the Dead Sea Scroll, that's where the scrolls were discovered. That's where we find a lot of the writings of these people. Well, John the Baptist was operating in the area not far from the caves of, the, of Qumran, where the Qumran had been set up there. So no wonder the authorities were curious about who this guy was. you got this group of people over here saying, we're the true believers. These priests here are messed up. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist, he's preaching. He's preaching right in the area where these guys are. And so they're saying, hey, what's going on here? we got to check this out. Now, 
remember, Jerusalem was under Roman domination at this time. And in most cases, Rome allowed the conquered providence to govern themselves, all right? They let them do their own thing. The Sanhedrin had power to govern Judea and all matters pertaining to religion and civil law except for executions. They weren't allowed to put anybody to death. Only the Roman authority could do that. They had control of life and death over the conquered people. The Sanhedrin had the power to arrest, though, to bring to trial, to convict offenders of the law. So... They're, they want to find out, do we need to arrest this guy? Do we need to put this guy away? What's this guy doing? So they send a mission out there to find out what's going on. And again, during this time, messianic expectations were running real high in Israel. People long for deliverance. They want to be free from Rome. They're tired of this oppression. So in the midst of this expectancy, in the midst of the excitement, a group of men show up from Jerusalem to find out, from the, sent from the Sanhedrin to find out, what is this guy doing? Who is this guy and what's he doing here? And so here's the question. They come to him and they say, hey, who are you? This is the same question they asked Yeshua in John 8, 25. And John and Yeshua taught and acted in ways which made these leaders uncomfortable. Because they didn't fit. They weren't part of the religious establishment. And so they questioned them. And the question, again, relates to the Jewish expectation of the coming Messiah. John's answer to them is, he confessed and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, they didn't say anything about the Christ, did they? Well, that's the real question. Basically, when they come, they're asking him, are you the Messiah? Because they were looking for that Messiah. And he says, I'm not the Christ. So he knows what they're asking and he answers their question. Many thought that John the Baptist was the promised Messiah. He had a following. You know, everybody gets a following, okay? You know, people will follow anybody. All right, that's... (laughs) That's easy enough to prove. <laughs> Look at Luke 3.15. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the Christ. And John says, I am not the Christ. He emphatically states that I'm not the Christ. Mark that down, people. I'm not him. Listen, everywhere you see John the Baptist in this gospel... His own work and his message is downplayed and Yeshua is elevated. That's John's whole ministry, to lift up Yeshua, put himself down. Now, many scholars suspect that Lazarus is writing against the followers of John the Baptist who were still preaching John the Baptist 70 years after his death. So maybe that's, maybe that's true. Maybe he still has a sect of following. And so, you know, John, the writer, is trying to make this real clear. He's not the Christ. He said he wasn't the Christ. He's here to elevate Christ. So they asked him, what then? Well, if you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? Because Elijah is the forerunner to Christ. And he said, I'm not. This question arises out of Malachi, because Malachi said before the Christ came, a forerunner would come to warn the people, to let the people know he was coming. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming great and terrible day of the Lord. All right, so before Yahweh's coming, he's going to send a forerunner. And everything about John fit the prophecies about the return of Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. He showed up at the exact spot that Elijah went into heaven at. Everything about him. And messianic expectations running high at that time because Daniel had predicted a date of the appearance of Messiah, and they knew it was around this time. So they're like ready, they're on the edge, and all of a sudden here comes this guy, looks like Elijah, preaches like Elijah, 
you know, he's a hellfire damnation preacher. He's laying it out there. He's in the exact same spot. So they're like, hey, something's going on here. Justin, in his apology, writes this. Popularly, it was believed that Elijah would anoint the Messiah and thereby reveal his identity to him, to Israel. So they're thinking, okay, you're not the Christ. Maybe you've come here to tell us who the Christ is. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at John. They say, are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. How could John the Baptist say he's not Elijah when Yeshua said he was Elijah? Matthew eleven fourteen, And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, this is Christ talking, who was to come. <coughs> now remember, let me try to answer this question. Remember, Elijah didn't die, right? He was taken into heaven. His body wasn't found. They never found a body. He was just gone. So it seems that some expected Elijah to return in person. You, he left. This, the same Elijah that left is coming back. So John rightly denies being Elijah in person because I'm not Elijah, I'm John. Yet, we're reading Luke's gospel that John the Baptist will go before Messiah, it says, in the spirit and power of Elijah, Luke 1.17. So Yeshua then tells his disciples that John is Elijah who is to come and prefaces it with the statement, if you're willing to accept it. Alright? If you're willing to accept it, he's Elijah. Not the literal Elijah. But he's fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi because he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. So then they ask him, well, okay, you're not the Messiah. You're not the foreigner. You're not Elijah. Are you the prophet? And he says, no. And this line of questioning, I think, reflects the various categories of messianic expectation during the second temple period. Since he denied being the Messiah or his forerunner, Elijah... He's asked, well, are you the prophet? Now listen, Yeshua already said John was a prophet. And he says no here. But they're not asking him, are you a prophet? Are you the prophet? Who is the prophet they're talking about? Where's the prediction of a coming prophet? Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, that's the Israelites like you, and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command them. He shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. So who's this prophet? Well, it's Yeshua. How do we know? Peter told us. Acts chapter 3. And that he may send Yeshua the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient times. Now Peter is saying, if they will trust Yeshua, they being Israel, they will be redeemed, their sins will be forgiven, times of refreshing will come. But if they reject Him, judgment. Then he goes on, he said, Moses said, then he quotes Deuteronomy 18, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now Peter's point is that Yeshua is the prophet whom God has raised up, who is like Moses. Peter identifies the true Israel. It's those who follow Messiah. And look what he says at the end there. He says, if you don't follow this man, if you don't believe him, if you don't trust in him, you will be destroyed from among the people. The people is a designation of Israel, the people of God. In other words, you won't be the people of God if you reject the Messiah. 
So it's when John denies that he is the prophet, he is once again denying he's the Messiah. He said, no, I'm not the Messiah. Notice John's answers. Who are you? He says, I am not the Christ. Five words. Then they said, are you Elijah? He says, I am not. Three words. Are you the prophet? No. <laughs> I love it. This is a typical guy. His answers get shorter every question he's asked. You know, No. Okay? Uh, no, I'm, I, you know, it's like he's getting irritated. All right? Just the answer. No, I'm not. All right? Then they said to him, well, then who are you? I mean, we're sent as a delegation from the Sanhedrin to find out who you are. You're not this. We got to know who you are. All right? We got to go back. We got to give an answer to these people. So you got to tell us who you are. What are you doing here? Well, he says, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of Yahweh, as Isaiah the prophet has said. So John says, I am a voice. That's it. I'm not Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm a voice. In all four of the Gospels, he identifies himself as the voice that Isaiah spoke about in the 40th chapter of the book. He's not a prophet. He's not Messiah. Not a lie. He is the voice crying out. So he, he identifies himself as the preparatory voice, which was the role of Elijah, of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now this passage originally prophesied the forgiveness of the tribes of Israel and their return from exile. Isaiah had prophesied the destruction of both the northern kingdom of Israel, 722 B.C., which he saw take place in his lifetime, and the future destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah, which was fulfilled 135 years later in 587 B.C. So this message of hope promises God's forgiveness and in effect that the return through the desert, the hills would be leveled, the valleys would be filled in, and they're preparing an eschatological superhighway for the return of God's people. Now, Isaiah chapter 40 is a really pivotal chapter in this Hebrew book. It marks the turning point from the prophecies of judgment. For 39 chapters, he's been bringing prophecies of destruction, of judgment. And chapter 40 starts talking about deliverance. It's the beginning of the good news of the book of Isaiah. And the gospel writer saw the connection. Yeshua is the good news of God's salvation promised in Isaiah 40 through 66. And so John the Baptist points this as he is a preparer. He's preparing the way for Messiah. Let's look at this text in Isaiah 40. It's a really significant passage. He says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, Clear the way of Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now here, in this text, Yahweh is the speaker. And he issues four commands. Comfort, comfort, speak, and call. All four commands are grammatically plural in the Hebrew. That means that Yahweh is commanding a group. Who's he commanding here? It's not the Israelites or a collective Israel because he's commanding this group to say this to Israel. All right? So who's the group? Come on. He's speaking to his council. 
All right. God is in council is in session and he's speaking to his council members. He's speaking to the other gods, his family, and he's giving them go. Here's what I want you to do for Israel. The coming of Messiah will result in redemption for all the tribes. Yahweh will draw his children from every tribe and nation, whether they're Abraham's literal descendants or not. He's bringing back in the nations. And in Isaiah 40, verse 3, the council member who responds is not identified. We don't know who, who talks here. You know, he brings out this thing to the council and then someone responds. Now, earlier in Isaiah 6, verse 8, Yahweh asks, who will I send and who will go for us? Speaking of the council, who's going to go represent us? And there we know, Isaiah said, here I am. Send me, I'll go. I'll be the one to go. Well, with the arrival of Messiah, Lazarus cast John the Baptist here in Isaiah's role. Like the prophet of old, John the Baptist has stood in the council. That was a, that was a, a picture of the prophets. A prophet of God was someone who had stood in the council. He had been in the council of God. He had got his directions directly from the council, from God. Now, to a Jew familiar with the Tanakh, this pattern would be easy to see. And it had been the case at the time of Isaiah, Yahweh's council had met in regard to the fate of apostate Israel. They meet, they decide a fate on Israel. Isaiah had been sent to a spiritually blind and deaf nation. And the calling of John the Baptist tells the reader that Yahweh's divine counsel is in session again. Only this time, the aim is to launch the kingdom of God with the second Yahweh, now incarnate as the point man. This one will not fail. So this text in Isaiah is talking about John the Baptist. He is the forerunner. Now let me ask you a question here. Who is John the forerunner of? Who's he preparing the way for? It's not a trick question. Okay, he's Christ, right? He's the forerunner of Christ. He's a forerunner of Yeshua. Jesus, for those of you who are, you know. Yeshua, all right? We're clear on that, right? That's John's mission, right? He's preparing the way. Now watch what Isaiah says, and watch this carefully. A voice is calling, clear the way for Yahweh. Now, who is John a forerunner for? Is he a forerunner for Yahweh or for Yeshua? Yes. Yeshua is Yahweh. Okay, over and over, we've, we've hit this in John's Gospel. It's not in John's Gospel. It's everywhere through the, the Tanakh, through the New Testament. Yeshua is Yahweh incarnate. He is the second Yahweh that we see throughout the Tanakh made manifest, made visible. When you see Yeshua, you see Yahweh because they are one in the same. Now it's interesting that the Qumran community chose this text of Isaiah for the reason for establishing their community in the desert wilderness at the Dead Sea. This is what they said. The reason they set up their in the caves out there, was because of this voice. He's going to be in the wilderness. And so they said, well, we're going to go there. They knew this is a special spot. Let's go set up our community right there. Then we'll be on the scene when this stuff happens. They're right there. They're right there when it happens. Verse 24, now they had been sent, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. All right, the Pharisees were a lay movement of Jewish religious authorities. They were experts in the interpretation of the law. They were an important group in Second Temple Judaism. They're known from the New Testament. They're known from Josephus. They're known from rabbinic literature. This verse is really ambiguous. All right, This verse can mean 
the Pharisees sent John's questioners, referring to those in verse 19, or it can mean the questioners were Pharisees, which is unusual in light of the fact that most of the priests were Sadducees. It seems to refer to another group than that of John 1.19. So this is another group that had been sent from the Pharisees. More people. So in other words, all the religious leaders getting involved, sending people to ask John the question. They asked him and they said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet? Why are you baptizing? They wanted to know. What's going on here? How, How come you're doing this stuff? He says, if... Now, the if here is a first-class condition. In this sentence, it assumes it is true. You could say since. Since you're not the Christ, since you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, why are you out here baptizing? Baptizing. They want a justification for this. See, if John the Baptist is not claiming any eschatological role, then they're wondering, why are you performing an eschatological action in baptizing? Their question implied that it was inappropriate for John to baptize. Now, the Jews practice baptism for ritual cleansing. But in all cases, the baptismal candidate baptized themselves. All right? You just went into the, you know, the, the baptismal pool. You baptized yourself. There wasn't anybody else that did this for you. Um, so there's no precedent for John to be baptizing other people. And the Jews didn't regard themselves as needing to repent, of course. So they saw that only as a thing Gentiles had to do. So they're really confused here. Now, proselyte baptism, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, you would go through baptism. That was normative in ancient Judaism for those Gentiles that wanted to convert to Judaism. But it was highly unusual for the Jews themselves to be baptized. All right, So they saw this as a Gentile thing. Now, those at Qumran, they did practice self-baptisms um, just for cleansing, so to speak. So you know, this whole thing is they're like, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? And John answered them saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one who you do not know. Now, the word stands here is in the perfect tense and it implies a Hebrew idiom here of there is one who has taken his stand in your midst. In other words, this person is here now. You don't know who he is. And I think at this point, John doesn't really know who he is yet. We're going to see that in the coming verses. Not today, but next time. All right. So he doesn't, but he's here. The Messiah is already here. Now, there's an interesting passage in the writings of the Qumran community this congregation near the Dead Sea where the scrolls were discovered. And one of their scrolls called the, the Rule of Life, concerning the Messiah, it says this, God will cleanse man through a Holy Spirit and will sprinkle upon him a spirit of truth as purifying water. So they're connecting the spirit and water here. And John says, I'm baptizing you with water. So they're seeing this as, as connected with the Spirit's ministry. So this community at Qumran, they would have been ready for John the Baptist's message. I mean, they're prime. This guy's a priest, but he's not connected with Jerusalem. So we want to hear this guy. We want to hear what he's got to say. Perhaps they were already jumping on the bandwagon with John saying, yes, finally, it's happening. Verse 27, it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This is referring to Messiah, the one who comes after me. John, as like I said, he didn't quite know who he was yet. He really did not get it. You know, they were cousins, but he didn't get that his cousin was the Messiah yet. Now watch what he says, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. (laughs) Explaining this uh, little idea here, Morris, Leon Morris writes this, to get the full impact of this, we must bear in mind that the disciples did many services for their teachers. Teachers in ancient Palestine were not paid. 
It would be a terrible thing to ask for money for teaching scriptures. Okay, that's in ancient Palestine. Okay, just so you know that. All right. (laughs) But in partial compensation, disciples were in the habit of performing small services for their rabbis. So the rabbis weren't paid, but the disciples would help them out, you know, help meet their needs. But they had to draw the line somewhere. And menial tasks like loosing the sandal thong came under this heading. Rabbi uh, Yeshua ben Levi said this, All manner of service that a slave must render to his master, the pupil must render to his teacher, except that of taking off his shoes. So John picks out a task. That, you know, the most menial task he could come up with, they, they weren't allowed to do, and he says, I'm not even worthy to do that. All right, that's my position. He declares himself unworthy to perform the most menial task. I'm not even on the radar, he says, okay? It's all about Yeshua. And it says, these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Again, he gives us a geographical location. Now, if you're familiar with the scripture, you heard of Bethany, right? That's the town where Lazarus lived. That's the town where Lazarus' and sisters lived. It was near the Mount of Olives, near Jerusalem. Bethany means place or house of grace. Now, some ancient texts name this Bethharbara, which means place of the crossing. But since no town by this name have been discovered in any text or in any archaeological dig, most scholars believe this name indicates that it was the site where the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River when they first entered the Promised Land. Again, right back to where you know we talked about earlier, where John showed up. So the correct reading here is Bethany. Some of your texts have other readings, but this is, see, there's Bethany right there, near Jerusalem, and then we have Bethany over here on the other side of the Jordan. That's the Bethany he's talking about, all right? That's why, you know, sometimes in Scripture it's designated, so you know which one. This is the one on the eastern side of the Jordan River. This is where he's baptizing. All right, this brings us to the end of the first day. And John closes this passage with, I said, a geographical reference of the name of the site. And as we're going to see, he closes a section of the narrative with a geographical reference is really common in John. He seems to continue to do this. He wants us to know what's going on and where it's happening. And like I said, this is a very significant site for the children of Israel. This is where it all started. They crossed this Jordan when they came into the promised land. Major things happened here. They were expecting things to happen here in the wilderness. And so John shows up in this very spot looking like Elijah, preaching like Elijah, and man, they're just, what's happening? And John is making it very clear in this text it's all negative. I'm not him. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm, not I'm just a voice. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. Next week, we'll pick up day two and carry on with the testimony of John. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, there's so much there that we could just spend weeks and weeks digging, Lord. I thank you for, for making clear to us so much. Help us to realize, Lord, help us to crawl into the mind of these first century believers and understand what their environment was, what they were doing, what they were thinking, that we might understand what you're saying here. Too often, Lord, we read over these texts and the geographical references not understanding the significance. Thank you, Lord, for the detail. Give us understanding into it. Amen. All right, uh, questions or comments this morning on anything we covered or didn't cover? I heard you mention Maccabees, uh, and I know that the Catholic Bible, or it's a book in their studies, yes. and that comes from the descendants of Aaron. Yes, first in, in, the, in the Apocrypha, 
which is, you know, in the Catholic Bible, it's not in our canon. But listen, Apocrypha was in the Bible of the early Christians. This was part of their Bible, all right? Not part of ours, but part of theirs. Um, I would not go so far as to say that it's inspired, but I think it's very profitable. And in that section, we have First and Second Maccabees. Excellent, excellent history of what happened in the 400 years of silence. All right, we'll talk about the wars that are taking place, talk about what's going on in those 400 years. So that is a very historical account in the Maccabees. I would encourage any of you all to, you know, I know it's kind of strange to hear someone encouraging you to read the Apocrypha, but there is good material in there, all right? And in my view, I think you realize it's greatly changed over the last couple of years on the Pseudepigrapha. I think we should be reading the Pseudepigrapha also. I think we should be familiar with it because... Again, this was the Bible of the first century believers. They read all this stuff. So if you want to know what they were thinking, you got to read that material. All right? Now, I wouldn't say put away the scriptures and read that, but, you know, add it to the scriptures. Or keep reading the scriptures. That's, you know, you got to stay in there. But if you want to get inside the head of a first century saint, and listen, that's context. We talk about taking the Bible in context. It's not just in that chapter. That's part of the context. All right. Surrounding verses are part of context. Books part of the context. But what is happening where this, what's the historical context? What time did it take place? What language were those speaking? All that stuff is part of context. So when we understand what those people thought, we understand context. Anybody else? Questions? Comments? Y'all got that? Clear? Keep this idea of Qumran in mind. Uh, most of you are familiar with Qumran. I mean, you know the Dead Sea Scrolls came from there, right? Significant find. I mean, our views change so drastically on a lot of things. You know, when you're reading commentators before Qumran, you got to be a little bit leery. Because so many things were discovered that views changed drastically after Qumran. We have text now about this. And the, and the same was true in Ugarit. I think it was about 1929 when they discovered the, you know, the, the, the tablets at Ugarit. Once those got translated, wow, our views started changing drastically because we learned, you know, they use the same words that the Hebrew Bible uses, but maybe the Hebrew Bible only uses it once. And so we go there and we find out here's what the word really means. Here's how they used it. And Ugarit was close to Jerusalem, very similar in, in everything that they believe. So very important. All right, so let me make myself clear. You still read your Bible, okay? But I'm asking you to do a little bit extra. You know, read the Apocrypha. Find out what's in there, you know, again, because you're, you're going to understand what these first century Christians thought. And listen, the people who wrote the Bible, they're very familiar with those texts. And that's why I think you ought to be familiar with them, because they're, that, that's in their mind. We know that, right? Because Jude quotes, who's Jude quote? Enoch. Enoch. All right. Yeah, Jude quotes Enoch. So we're like, what? Yeah, because that's in his mind. He's thinking that, because all those people are thinking that. So you want to understand the writers? Do a little more digging. All right, it's maybe a little complicated, you know, but I'll tell you what, it's, and like I said, some of the stuff is, you'll really enjoy it. I guarantee you, if you read the, the first and second book of Adam and Eve, it will, it will have an impact on you, okay? It'll make you think things you never thought before about Adam getting kicked out of the garden, all right? Because in the biblical story, Adam's in the garden, he gets kicked out, oh, there we are, we're moving on. In the book of Adam and Eve, I guarantee it'll make you hate sin. Because Adam and Eve are constantly trying to kill themselves. They're beating themselves. They're and they're constantly moaning about, we, the garden, we got kicked out of the garden. We want to be back in the garden. And you just see the pain of sin. And it just, it's awesome. It's good stuff.